Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. So today, we're going to our Bible study. Our Bible focus today is on one of my favorite Bible stories in the entire Old Testament, okay? And it's about three people, or there's three main characters in the story, okay? Uh, Two women and one man. Okay, the man's name is Boaz, and one of the women's name is Naomi, and the the other's name is Ruth. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, okay? So let's, let me tell you about those three people, okay? All right, Naomi, uh, she lived in Judah, and she was from the city of Bethlehem, okay? Does the, does the city of Bethlehem ring a bell to anybody? That's where Jesus was born, okay? Years and years later. So Naomi's from uh, uh, Bethlehem in Judah, and they, she was married, okay? And she had two sons. Well, there happened to be a famine in the land. What's a famine? A famine is where there's no food, okay? There may be uh, a drought or something like that going on in the land, and they cannot grow food, cannot grow crops for food. So there was a famine in the land. And so Naomi and her husband and her two sons went to another city called Moab. Moab, okay? And while they were in Moab, they'd been there for a period of time, and something really bad happened. Naomi's husband died, okay? So that left Naomi and her two sons. Well, her two sons got married, married two women from Moab, and their names were Ruth. You heard me say Ruth a moment ago. Ruth and Orpha. That was the other woman's name, Orpha. Not Oprah, Orpha. Okay, you can ask your mom and dad who Oprah is. Orpha, all right? So they, lived, they had been living there for 10 years, Naomi, her two boys, and their wives. They'd been there for 10 years now. Something bad happened again. Her two sons died. My goodness. So that left Naomi, Ruth, and Orpha, three women. Okay, that was all. That was all that was left in the family at the time. So this was the custom in that day and time. When, if if you were married and your husband died, you would return to your family. And that's what Naomi. She went to Ruth and Orpha and said, "You go back to your family. You go back home." Well, Orpha did, but Ruth did not. Listen to what Ruth said. Ruth said. And she, say, she said this to Naomi, her mother-in-law. She said, wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. So Naomi and Ruth, they left there and traveled back to Judah. Okay? And once they reached the, reached the land back in Judah, Ruth began to gather grain in the fields. She began to gather grain in the field. And she happens to so happen, I think it was God-ordained, she began to to gather grain in a field owned by a man whose name was Boaz. 
B-O-A-Z, Boaz, okay? Now, Ruth did not know this. Boaz happened to be related to Naomi's husband who had died. Ruth did not know that. So Ruth goes home, goes home to Naomi and says, Hey, I'm gathering grain in this field, and I met this man. His name is Boaz. He owns the field. And Naomi tells Ruth, Hey, he is our kinsman redeemer. He was related to my husband. Okay? So let me share with you guys what a kinsman redeemer is. A kinsman redeemer is somebody in your family. If, if you are in need of help, if you're having trouble with something, a kinsman redeemer will help you. Well, Naomi and Ruth, they, they needed help because there was no man in the home. Both their husbands had died, so they needed help. And Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. So Naomi, she wanted to make sure that Ruth had a husband to care for her one day. Okay, So she encouraged Ruth to go back to Boaz and talk to him and to show him that he hoped, she hoped that he would one day marry her. Well, guess what? He did. He did marry Ruth. And he redeemed Naomi and Ruth. He was their kinsman redeemer. And he promised Boaz, he promised to redeem Ruth. And uh, he bought back the land that they once owned. He bought that back. And like I said a moment ago, he, he did marry Ruth. Now... Let me tell you a little bit, a couple more things real quickly. Boaz and Ruth had a son after they got married. They had a son. His name was Obed. Okay, Obed. Obed had a son by the name of Jesse. Jesse had a son, and he would become King David. Why is that important? Here's why. King David was in the family tree of Jesus. Okay? All of you guys know what a family tree is? Some of you do, some of you don't. Okay. Jesus was in the King David's family tree. But here's how Jesus is in the story of Ruth and Boaz. Jesus is yours and mine. He is our kinsman redeemer. Jesus bought you. What, what, is our, what is the thing that we need help with? We need help with our sin. And God provided Jesus to be our kinsman redeemer and take care of our sin problem. Okay? Now I want you to look at the poster. God provided a redeemer for Ruth, and that was Boaz. God provided a kinsman redeemer for you and I. His name is Jesus. Now this is what it may have looked like. You see Ruth, she's bent over, gathering grain. And there's Boaz, he notices her. And they get married. How cool is that? That's great, ain't it? All right. So, we have something special for you guys today. We have put together something we are calling busy bags. Busy bags. These are not for your mom and dad. Okay. So don't let them grab them and hold them and keep them. All right, these are for you. 
All right? If you are in grades one, two, or three, you will you can come to me and I will give you a busy bag. If you are younger, that means you are three, four, five, and not in first grade, you can come to Darren. And he will give you a bag. Parents, there is a card in these bags with some clear instructions. Okay? After the service is over, if you will just leave the, leave the bag in the chair, and we'll gather those after the service today. Okay? All right. I want to ask everyone to stand, and we're going to have prayer, and then we'll receive our offering. So I'll ask the ushers to come forward, if you will. And boys and girls, once we finish praying, if you will come to me, if you are in grades 1, 2, or 3, One, two, or three, and I'll give you a bag. If you are younger than first grade, you will go to Mr. Darren, and he will give you a bag. If you are grades four, five, and six, you will go to Mr. Zach, and he will give you your paper and your take-home card, okay? So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, God. We thank you for your blessings. God, we thank you for this opportunity to be here today. We thank you, God, that, uh, that you sent for us, God your son, Jesus, to be our kinsman redeemer. God, I ask that you be with us as we go through this service. God, that you be with John and the worship team as they lead us in song. God, that you be with Pastor Lynn as he preaches your word. Lord, help us to be focused on our kinsman redeemer today and the mission that you have for us. For in Christ's name I pray, amen. Good morning. I want to do two things that actually would kind of lead to a segue into the message before I get uh, to that point uh, to the message. Uh, One doesn't necessarily have to do with Memorial Day. Uh, Last week I mentioned this because last week was Law Enforcement Week uh, in in our country. Uh, So I'd I'd ask you to, uh, you know, be praying for our law enforcement, uh, be be supportive of them. I'm not going to have them stand, but we do have more of them with us this week than we had last week. And I'm also not going to point out this individual at all, but we happen to have a, a deputy from the Caldwell County Sheriff's Department who was shot and could have lost his life uh, last year. Uh, guys, let's show our appreciation of what they do for us. On, uh, on Veterans Day, we'll have our veterans to stand. That's what, not what Memorial Day is about. Uh, Memorial Day is about something different, and I'll say more about that in a moment. But I'd like to ask everyone to stand, everyone, every child, everyone, if you would please stand for a minute. The, The reason I'm asking you to stand this morning is to point out to you that you have the freedom to be here. You have the freedom to worship in America. You have the freedom that you have in this country because somebody died for you. They died for our freedom. That's what Memorial Day is. Those who pay the ultimate price serving our country who died doing so. So I'm going to challenge you based upon what they have done for us. The multitudes of soldiers who have died for us to preserve freedom throughout the history of our country. I want to challenge you by asking you, what are you going to do about it? Because I think in light of the sacrifice they've given, we ought to protect freedom and we ought to stand for freedom and we ought to value our freedom. 
Hey, had you told me when I was a child or a teenager or even a young adult there'd be any kind of debate in our country about maybe becoming a, a, a socialist country, I would have laughed at you. I honestly would have back then. Uh, guys, I, I don't want to sound harsh this morning, but you know, America is a free nation. If someone wants socialism, they can move to other countries where, we, where there is socialism. We ought to stand for freedom and honor freedom and a lot of those who have, have died in order that we might have it. Amen? Amen. And, and also, I want to use that to, to enter into this. Not only have soldiers died for you, there's someone else that died for you. There's no greater love than this than someone would lay their life down for their friends. That's what Jesus did for us. And if you know Christ as your Savior this morning, as I ask you, what should you do to respect and honor those who have fallen in our country, the soldiers who have fallen, and how should we live our lives? I want you to apply that to Jesus because if you know Christ as your Savior, how should we live to honor what he's done for us? And that's really what this series, Who's Your One, is all about. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be in a free country, the opportunity we have to be here this morning to worship, to sing songs about you, to worship you, to look into your word and read your word and apply it to our lives. Father, I pray you help us as, uh, as Americans to respect and pay honor to those who paid the ultimate price. But Father, moreover, those of us who are Christians, help us to honor Jesus in the way we live our lives because of what he's done for us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We're doing this series, as you well know, unless it's your first Sunday here since we started this series. We're doing it as a challenge to us to focus upon one person, each of us, to focus upon one person, to have a burden for one person, to be praying for one person, and then for us to love that person, serve that person, do everything we can to try and win that person, get that person to Jesus before the end of this year. That's what this series is about. In other words, guys, if if that's part of who we're supposed to be as believers We're supposed to do more than just believe in the mission. We're supposed to be involved in the mission. What what I find a lot of times, though, is this. It's easy for us to mentally or maybe even emotionally attach ourselves to the mission of Jesus to win other people. But instead of being engaged in the mission, we're kind of like spectators on the sidelines or cheerleaders on the sidelines. A lot of people can be all about sports and, you know, they'll like whatever their favorite sport is, their favorite team is or whatever, and they can be all about those teams, all about those sports, all about those games and get really excited about those games. But the difference is this, they're a spectator, they're a cheerleader, they're not leaving the bench to step out on the playing field to do anything about it. So apply that to us as the church and us as believers. We can be cheerleaders for the gospel. We, we can mentally assent to the fact that we ought to be leading other people to Jesus. We can even get really, really emotional about it. But are we actually doing something about it? Are we just cheerleaders? Are we just spectators? Or instead of being a, a cheerleader, are we going to be someone that, that, that actually is doing something about it? Instead of maybe just having some passion about it or, or just, and then staying passive, maybe we need to get to the point that we, that we participate. Each believer participate 
and getting someone to Jesus. We're going to read a story today that I actually alluded to back in the Jesus series. It wasn't the whole message, but uh, we're going to look at it from a different standpoint today in Luke chapter 5. So find your place there, and I'm going to uh, read all the way through it real quick, and then we're going to spend time this morning asking four main questions. And I phrase these questions in a, in a very personal way. It's as though you are asking the question of yourself. And underneath each of those four questions, there's going to be several other questions that I want us to kind of confront ourselves with this morning. Really familiar story about some men, instead of just being cheerleaders, they got in the game and they decided they're going to get a man to Jesus. They're taking him there for physical healing, but they wind up getting more than they bargained for. In, in this story. It said on one of those days, as he, talking about Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They weren't there for the right motive. Who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Sure, because it's Jesus in the flesh. Amen. He has the power to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed. Now, let me condition that for you. Don't get in your mind your king-size bed at home, you know, or your, uh, your mattress at home, or anything like that. And that day and time, is more like a mat that they could roll up, carry with them, you know, sleep on, lay on. So here, these men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. And when he, Jesus, saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? In other words, how in the world can you say his sins are forgiven? And they go on and say this, Who can forgive sins but God alone, which is right? And guess who was set in, in front of them? God in the flesh. Jesus Christ. And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, not that he heard what they were saying, when he perceived their thoughts, which once again gives evidence he's God in the flesh, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on his map. And he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So I want you to ask yourself these four questions, for me to ask myself these four questions. Question number one is this. Do I have a mission that involves my personally getting others to Jesus? Now, some may push back and say, well, sure we do. We're believers. We're Christians. We've got the Great Commission. We're supposed to get people to Jesus. Yes, we have a mission. I'm not talking about is the mission there. I'm asking you to evaluate your personal life. Have you personally bought into the mission that, that you're supposed to be getting others to Jesus? Then verse 17 and 18, we've already read it. It said, on, on one of those days, Jesus was teaching in the house and the religious crowd was there. 
And they'd come in from all over the place, and the power of the Lord was there to heal because Jesus was there. And it said, Behold, here comes some men bringing a bed, a man on a bed, a man who is paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. See, these guys had a mission they had accepted. They had a mission that they wanted to get this man to Jesus. And I think they were convinced Jesus could do something about his paralysis. Guys, mission speaks at the heart of who we are. Mission demands action. Mission demands a purpose. And our purpose ought to be to fulfill the mission. Having a mission statement is supposed to be more than some little cute saying that people can memorize and say, all right, I I know that's my mission statement. A mission statement is supposed to be about something we do. It's supposed to be about something that we are about. Corporations will have mission statements, and they don't set it up just to be something that sounds good. They will choose a mission statement that is about who they are as a corporation, who they are as a company, and what they do. Let me give you some examples of, of some real quick. Uh, Instagram, <laughs> pretty straightforward to capture and share the world's moments. Does that sound like that'd be a good you know, mission statement for Instagram? Dealing with photographs all the time. Disney, simple statement to make people happy. That's the mission statement of Disney. Ted, and some of you may not know that. Most of the business people do. You've watched some of the videos of Ted is to spread ideas, it is their mission statement. Ikea, to create a better everyday life for the many people. So they're trying their best to offer all these options that you can go and buy to help improve your life by the way the products are made. Tesla is one I like here because it says to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. That really has two things in it. They, because a lot of you may know this, some of you may think, what is Tesla? Tesla makes motors, electric motors, cars with electric motors that have tons and tons of torque. Matter of fact, the the day that some of you probably know this, but Becky had a 2012 uh, Equinox and she had always liked the Camaras and Cars Plus got in a a, a 2012 Camara SS. So it it kind of made a little bit of sense because they weren't too far apart and everything. So she'd always wanted one. So uh, I, we, we traded her Equinox. Uh, and the day I went to pick it up to kind of take it to show to her, I, I'm riding a 321 and I'm feeling, you know, kind of cool because I'm driving a muscle car for the first time in a, in a long time. And I come up on this little bitty car over here to my left. It was a Tesla. And the license plate says zero to 60 and 3.2. Instantly ruined the way I was feeling. <laughs> because the electric car was faster than the muscle car that I was driving. D- David Johnson down at Cars Plus, he has a Tesla he decided to keep for himself. It- it's an SUV. Uh, he took me for a ride in it one day when I was down there. He said, you want to go down the road? And he opened the door and looked at it like he- I- he's going to let me drive it. And it's a $100,000 car. So I'm not driving a $100,000 car. But about a get in, and he gives me a ride, and he, he punches it going down the road. It was in the city limits of Lenore. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and like from zero to 60, just boom. And, and, you know, zero to 80, maybe another second, just boom, like that. And uh, everything. Please don't go write David a ticket on, on, based on my testimony or, or anything. So, uh, 
Uh, but, but anyway, it's just, just really, really fast. So see, it means two things. To accelerate, those things will accelerate really, really fast. He, he's actually been to the drag strip and upset some people with it before. <laughs> but to transition the world in the direction of that type of technology. Now, the only reason I read all those mission statements for you is this. Do you realize that Jesus has a mission statement? We saw it the very first Sunday in this series in the story about Zacchaeus. Here's the mission statement of Jesus. Next slide. Jesus' mission statement is this. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. In Luke 19, in verse number 10. That's the mission of Jesus. Now, now guys, do you believe that Jesus thought that was more than just a concept? Because Jesus believed in that mission so much, he went to the cross, he suffered, he died, he he shed his blood for our sins. That's how much Jesus believed in the mission. Did you know Day 3 Church has a mission statement? This is the vision statement. They're they're interlinked together. But I want to stay over here this morning just on this. Here's our mission statement, connecting with God. And, And think how logical that is. We have to connect with God as individuals. You have to trust Christ as your Savior and connect with God to become a Christian. But then after you become a Christian, you still need to be connecting with God. You need to be praying, reading your Bible, doing all you can to connect in a relationship to God. But it doesn't stop there. We're supposed to be connecting with others. And connecting with others, yes, it means us in a way of fellowship, and that's why you ought to be part of a small group and have fellowship with people, be part of a, of, a, of, a, of a life group and things like that so you can have fellowship with other believers. But it also means you need to be connecting with people who are not believers, building relationships with them. Because here's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal, the mission statement is this, connecting others with God. You see, it's great that we can connect with God, and it's great we can connect with each other, but guys, God's called us to much more than that. He has called us to connect other people with God by leading them to faith in Jesus, and that's right at the heart of what this series is about. So Jesus has a mission statement. Our church has a mission statement, but I want to remind you the question that I ask you to think about, it is a personal question. Ask yourself that question from a personal standpoint. Do I have a mission that involves my personally getting others to Jesus? Corporations have mission statements and they do something about it. Jesus had a mission statement and he greatly did something about it. So we need to be about the mission statement that God has given us. And that's just tied to the Great Commission, guys. It's biblical. We need to be about the mission statement that he has given us. But like I said, make it personal. Don't just think about, oh, well, the church I go to has a mission statement. Make it personal. What about you? Are you personally getting others to Jesus? Have you ever personally led anyone to Jesus whatsoever? Do you have a personal mission to share the gospel with others? Have you identified who your one is? Have you written their name down? Have you laid it down on the stage? And are you taking steps to try and get that one to Jesus? Because that's what our our mission should be. In our scripture text today, we looked at those men were personally involved in getting this man to Jesus. They had decided that they would take it upon themselves. Maybe they had heard something. They must have heard something about Jesus because why would they want to take him to Jesus? And maybe they knew the man personally. Maybe it was a friend. 
Or maybe it was someone they didn't even know and they're just walking down the road and they see this man over there paralyzed laying on the mat and maybe they even start to walk by and then they stop and maybe see themselves as paralyzed on the mat. And they've heard some things about Jesus and they make this personal decision that they will do anything they can to try and get this person to Jesus. And they didn't try to change the man first. Did you notice that? They didn't go over to the man and say, well, hey, let us clean you up a little bit and tidy you up a little bit so you'll look better when you get to Jesus. They didn't do anything to try and fix him before they took him to Jesus. They're taking him to Jesus just like he was. They're taking him to Jesus on the mat of his paralysis. And they're carrying him to Jesus exactly in the condition that he was because they believed that Jesus could do something about it. Can I give you a warning that we need to heed, I think? We try to fix people before we get them to Jesus. And I'll say more about that later. Just put that in your pipe and your smoke a little bit and we'll come back to it in a, in, in, in a minute. These men take a personal mission to get them to Jesus. They didn't wait for somebody to act, somebody else to act. They, they, they didn't go in and make a phone call and say, hey, will you go get this guy and, and take him down to where Jesus is? They made a personal commitment themselves to get this person to Jesus, to take action and get them to Jesus. So my question is, you know, how about you? Do you have a a personal mission? Have you bought into the fact that you're supposed to lead somebody to Jesus? And you might ask, well, why should I do that? I'll give you one good reason. God told you to. Jesus gave you the great commission. He told you to. Can I give you a different reason? One you might can attach to a little bit better. Because you used to be where they were. See yourself as that person laying on the mat of paralysis. Remember who you used to be before you knew Jesus. Remember what your life used to be like before you knew Jesus. Remember how Jesus has changed your life. Remember what Jesus has done for you. And that ought to motivate you to try and reach someone else because they need the same Jesus that changed your life. It's more than just a theological reason, guys. There's a a personal reason we have to attach ourselves to that. You see, being paralyzed in the Scripture is also a a picture of sin. Sin paralyzes. I once was paralyzed. You once were paralyzed. Spiritually speaking, we were paralyzed. We were laying there. And somebody got us to Jesus, and that changed our lives. So we ought to have the desire to help the spiritual paralysis of people around us by getting them to Jesus. Can I ask you five questions to think about? And you'll need to process some of these and think about them later. If you need to, you can watch our live feed on Facebook later and say, what were those questions? And and, and write them down because you probably won't have time now. Can I ask you what drives you? What motivates you? What is the driving force of your life? Number two, are your dreams tied to this life or material world alone? In other words, is your life all about the world, the world system, your hobbies, whatever it might be? What drives you? Number three, what things, spiritually speaking, has God put on your heart that you long to see come about to reality in your lifetime? See, some of you may have felt God told you to do something and led you to do something years ago and you used to be really really passionate about it but somewhere along the way you've kind of let it drift away what are some dreams maybe that you used to dream for god that you need to remember number four do you have any kingdom dreams god type dreams things you're dreaming for god such as seeing 
your one or other people come to faith in Jesus? Number five, when was the last time you tried to get someone to Jesus? That might hurt a lot of us. Second main question I want you to consider from this story and ask yourself personally is this. Do I have any eager expectations concerning Jesus and others? Do I have any eager expectation, any anticipation concerning what Jesus can do for others? The second part of verse 18 says this, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. I think these men have some eager expectations. I think that's why they're doing what they're doing. I think as they're carrying this man along the, on, the, on the bed trying to give him to Jesus, I, I think maybe in their hearts and their minds they're thinking, man, I can't wait to give him to Jesus and see how his life changes. See what Jesus can do for him in the condition that he's in. It said they were seeking. They were seeking. That was their intent. That was their purpose. That was their mission. They, they were acting on faith to get him to Jesus. Can I ask you some more questions? What are you seeking? Honestly, what's your life about? What are you seeking? Number two, who are you seeking? Number three, who's your one? Number four, do you believe Jesus can change the lives of others so much, so much, that you have an eager expectation and anticipation of what Jesus will do? Number five, do you right now have any expectations of someone you know coming to Jesus? Are, are those expectations moving you to action to personally get them to Jesus? Because, guys, I'm not trying to be unkind this morning. I realize it's kind of an in-your-face type message. But if you don't have any expectations or any anticipation of someone you know coming to Jesus that needs to come to Jesus, you're probably missing the mission that God has for your life, the purpose that he has for you. How many heard of Jim Cimbala before? Raise your hand if you've heard of Jim Cimbala. Uh, you might recognize the name here in a minute. You're not any better than the first service. First service of me and Daryl and one other one raising their hands. How many heard of Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir before? That John, sometimes the singing is more important than the preaching to people. See that? Jim Cimbala is the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle Church. How many ever read the book Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire? You, you familiar with that? Oh, my goodness. This week, here's your homework assignment. Go on Amazon or go down to a Bible bookstore if you can find one still open. <laughs> and buy Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire and read it. Honest, guys, read it. Jim Cimbala... When we went to that little church, it was, it was nothing. Now they, 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 they reach thousands and have great street ministry there in, in Brooklyn. They, they have a prayer night on Tuesday night where multitudes of people show up and do nothing but pray for three to five hours. Jim Cimbala, when he was in college, played basketball at a college level, collegiate level, for the University of Rhode Island, and he also had the chance to play basketball for the Naval Academy. So someone that is playing sports at that level, 
They're normally all about that sport, aren't they? You know, they're really bought in. They're really passionate about that sport. So here Jim Cimbala had played for two universities, two colleges. But while he was in college, he felt God calling him to ministry. And later on, here's something he wrote in one of his books. I despaired at the thought I might let my life slip by without God showing himself mildly on my behalf. He was really driven by sports to be at the level that he was, but guess what his biggest passion was? The biggest driving force was. He didn't want to live his life and, and let it slip by without doing some God-sized things. I was hesitant to share this one because it's my son. But Jerry Parsons, years ago, I heard Jerry say this, and it wasn't about ministry at the time. It was about the military. It was about him wanting to try and get a chance to become a Navy SEAL. And he'd already been trying to train in that direction. And he wanted to be a, a medic on a SEAL team. And uh, he was taking it at the community college to uh, learn how to, to be a medic. And uh, they ran some tests on each other one day, and they found out he had a heart murmur. And we've had to run tests, and finally had a bicuspid heart valve. So that drummed him out of being on any kind of special ops. But that's fine because God had other plans. But I heard Jerry say this just about the military. My greatest fear is that I would live a life that doesn't matter. Now he says it about ministry. Do you have any fears like that? Or would you be content and happy just to live your life in a mundane way all the rest of your life and never do anything of eternal significance? Because God has called us to get people to Jesus. Question number three. Do I give up too easily when it comes to getting others to Jesus? Do I give up too easily when it comes to getting others to Jesus? Luke 5, verse 19, but finding no way to bring him in, at least not the traditional way, not through the door. Finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. Everyone's standing there soaking in the teaching of Jesus, not even paying attention. Somebody else wants to get in before Jesus. They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. See, they're, they're trying to take this man to Jesus for physical healing. They've accepted it as a personal mission. They're carrying this man to Jesus with high, eager expectations, I believe. But then they run into some obstacles. And it's kind of like the first message I did in this series about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. This crowd was there wanting to see Jesus, and they blocked the pathway for Zacchaeus. I'm afraid if we're not careful, guys, as I told you that Sunday, we can be like that crowd or this crowd. And there are other people that wanted to get to see Jesus, but we're so busy just soaking it up for ourselves and soaking it up for ourselves, we're failing to realize other people want to get before Jesus and we're not doing anything about it. Instead, we might be blocking the door for people. So they run into these obstacles as they're trying to get the man to Jesus. Here's my point. I'm afraid a lot of us at that point would give up what we were trying to do to get someone to Jesus. I'm afraid a lot of times we'd say, well, we tried. (laughs) 
We had good intentions. We were thinking about it strongly. We'd been praying for that person every now and then. We had good intentions. And, and we were going to try and get him to Jesus, but now it looks like there's some obstacles there. I, I was talking to one of our members after the first service, and he's got four people he's trying to reach, and one of them especially he, he's really good friends with at a campground where they uh, uh, go and stay a whole lot. is Will Rogers. I'll just tell you who it was. And, and William said he's trying to talk to this person and try and get to the point, you know, about Jesus. And about every time he gets there, the guy will look at him and say, there, there's two things I don't talk about, politics and religion. They've heard that before, and they think that gives them an easy out. They will wish one day they had talked about religion. So William is asking me to pray for that person and to, and, and, and to you know, pray that he could be effective in trying to get him to Jesus. William could have heard him say the very first time, I don't talk about politics and religion, and William just give up. He's not wanting him yet, but he's still trying. A lot of times we'll use spiritual sounding language when we hit difficulties and obstacles. I, I, I refer to it sometimes like this, Christianese. In other words, we start talking spiritually like Christians, but it's not really Christian what we're saying. We'll say things like this. Well, I guess the Lord blocked the door. Blame it on God. Maybe we were wrong. Maybe God doesn't want this to happen because now we're having some difficulty. Maybe we need to stop trying to get this particular person to Jesus because this particular person is really difficult and we need to come over here and find an easier person to get to Jesus. In other words, we're prone to take the pathway of least resistance instead of persevering and continuing on the pathway where there is resistance, trying to get someone into the presence of Jesus. Can I, can I ask you a question? Aren't you thankful the apostle Paul didn't do that? Because he wrote more than the New Testament. God inspired him writing more than the New Testament than anyone else. What if the Apostle Paul gave up at the first sign of resistance? I mean, right after he came to faith in Jesus. And he found out they were outside the city. They were trying to kill him. And they had to lay him down in a basket where he could get away. What if he had said, this is too hard. This is too difficult. I'm going to give up. Can I tell you about the pathway of Paul? He was arrested multiple times. He was beaten, flogged. He was stoned on more than one occasion and left for dead. He was shipwrecked. Like I said, arrested more than once. Went to Rome. Eventually, here's what happened to him. Tradition tells us this, not the Bible. But he was beheaded in Rome for his faith. What would have happened if someone had said, Hey, Paul, don't go to Rome. They're going to kill you when you get to Rome. I think Paul already knew that. And Paul said, I'm going to go anyway. See, what, what if Paul gave up? What if Jesus had given up because of the, the difficulty that he was facing trying to get us to faith in God, to go through what he went through on the cross? What if Jesus just said, it's not worth it, it's too difficult, I'm going to give up? I'm just trying to tell you guys, we, we need to look in our own lives and ask ourselves, do we give up too easy when it comes to trying to get someone else to Jesus. You see, these men in the story didn't give up. They didn't stop just because of the difficulty. So we need to ask ourselves this question. 
do we give up too easily when it comes to getting someone to Jesus? I mean, these men could have. Think about it. Well, we've been carrying him a little ways. He's starting to get heavy. We've carried him all the way over here. And I can't get in the door. And I'm really tired. And it's costing me more than I thought it was going to cost, taking more of my time than I thought it was going to take. So I, you know, I guess we just need to lay him down where he is and we'll just go on our way. But that's not what they did. Remember, they had accepted a personal mission to try and get this person to Jesus. So instead of giving up, they improvised. And instead of giving up, these men pushed beyond these well-meaning crowds that are blocking the door. And instead of giving up, they do something radical. They take a risk. They go up on the roof and, and they tear some things up. And guys, I'm just telling you, especially in the day and time that we live in, if we're going to get other people to Jesus, plan for it up front. It's going to be difficult to get people to Jesus. It's going to be hard sometimes. It'll take more time than you intended on it to take. You're going to run into some obstacles. It's not whether you will run into obstacles. You will run into obstacles trying to get someone to Jesus. But we need to be like these men. We need to become more unconventional. We need to be willing to take a risk. We, we need to do things differently. We need to improvise and do all that we can to get someone to Jesus instead of easily giving up. We need to kick some doors in. Instead of easily giving up, we need to tear some roofs off some places in order to get someone to Jesus because the value of that one person is more valuable than your comfortable life. So ask yourself that question. Are you willing to do those things to get somebody to Jesus? When you encounter obstacles... Don't throw up the white flag and surrender because there's an obstacle. Instead, dig a hole in the roof. Instead, take some risk. Do whatever it takes. Some more questions. What obstacles have derailed your mission? You, you had a mission in your life for God, but you've allowed it to be derailed by some kind of obstacles. Number two, have you ever been on mission for Christ? Have you ever even bothered to pick up the mat and go on a mission? Number three, do you give up too easily when it comes to getting others to Jesus? Number four, are you willing to dig some holes and some roofs to get others to Jesus? In other words, are you willing to take a, a risk? Are you willing to look foolish? See, a lot of people worried about that in this time. Well, if I go out and try to win somebody to Jesus, if I get all about Jesus, my friends are going to make fun of me. People are going to make fun of me. They're going to look at me and say I'm foolish. Put yourself in this scenario for a minute. Can you imagine when you're, you're sitting there and all of a sudden someone's digging a hole in the roof and they're letting someone down through the roof? I guarantee you there's people in that crowd that was thinking to themselves, what are those idiots doing? Guys, we, we can't let what other people think about us keep us from taking a risk and trying to get others to Jesus, being radical and unconventional to get others to Jesus. Last question, question number four. Do I want to see extraordinary things? Do I, do you, do, do we want to see extraordinary things happen? I'm not going to read all the verses. We 
read it already. I'm just going to talk through it. When Jesus saw their faith, Jesus looked at the man. The first thing he said was, you're forgiven of your sin. That's what he tells him. The religious crowd starts judging Jesus. Jesus knows in their thoughts they're judging him. So Jesus, more or less, kindly <laughs> makes it real clear to him who he is. It's easy for me to say, your sins be forgiven you, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk. He said, in order that you may know that I, the Son of Man, have the authority to forgive sins, guess what I'm going to do? And he looks at the man and he says, rise and take up your bed and walk. And the man rolls his mat up, puts it under his arm, takes off toward his house, glorifying God as he's going. And all the crowd are amazed at what's happened. And amazement sees them all. And they also glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. My, my question is, do you, do I, do we want to see extraordinary things in our lives, in the lives of other people? These men were determined to get a man to Jesus and they got more than they bargained for. Their mission was just to get physical healing for this paralyzed man. That was their mission. And I think they had an eager expectation we've already talked about. But they got a whole lot more than they bargained for. Jesus forgave the man of his sins because they refused to allow any obstacles to block them. They get him through the roof. They bring him down before Jesus. And Jesus forgives the man of his sins. And they see some extraordinary things take place. Pay, pay attention to the progression and how Jesus does this. Jesus didn't go ahead and heal the man, the external man. Did you catch that? Instead, Jesus dealt with the inner man first. And then after he dealt with the inner man, then Jesus dealt with the outer man, with the external man. Jesus forgave him of his sins first. Guys, that's the way Jesus still operates. Jesus deals with our sin first. He deals with our inner man first. Then he changes the outside. Then he changes our walk. We, we mess it up so bad in the church by us thinking that we can fix people before they come to Jesus. Guys, the only thing that will fix people is for their inside to be changed, for their heart to be changed, for their guilt to be dealt with. That's the only thing that will fix someone for them to understand who Jesus is, what Jesus did for them, them come to faith in Jesus. Then when their sins are forgiven, then they have the boldness for their walk to be changed. Then they have the ability to live a life different than they were living before. That's how Jesus works. Remember, don't try and fix people on the outside before Jesus fixes them on the inside. Because all we do is damage our chance to share the gospel with them. And damage our chance to give a demonstration of the power of God in this world. If we try to fix them ourselves before we let Jesus change the inside. If you want to see amazing things, recognize that Jesus changes people from the inside out and he mightily changes them. If you want to see amazing things, if you want to have additional reasons to glorify God, if you want to be filled with a new sense of awe like these people were in this story, then what you need to do is bring others to Jesus and see a life transformed. 
Guys, there is amazement caused by transformed life. If you knew who I was at one point in my life, you would say, he has no reason to be up here. And that's true. I'll be the first to admit it. Jesus changes people. And if you want to stand amazed, start taking people to Jesus. Because what you'll see is change start to take place in their life. Imagine part of this story. <laughs> there have been probably multitudes of people walked by this man paralyzed. And they might not have been over here at the house where Jesus was teaching. Now Jesus has healed the man, forgave him of his sin, healed him. The man rolls up his mat and now he's walking back home. Even people that did not know what had happened knew he was different. Knew his life was changed. Knew he walked differently. Knew he was glorifying God. He was acting differently. Guys, that's how evident it is when God really changes a life. That's why we need to adopt our mission to get others to Jesus. Three more questions, and then I'm going to read you a story, and we're done. How did others play a role in your trust in Jesus? Think about your own life, your own story. How has Jesus transformed your life? And why would you not long for this same type of transformation in others? Daryl Robinson wrote a book years ago entitled People Sharing Jesus. I'm going to read you a story, and I'm going to warn you up front. It may wreck your life a little bit this morning. Here's what he wrote. Now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. So week after week, month after month, and year after year, these who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means. They defended fishing as an occupation and declared that fishing is always to be a primary task of fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods for fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. They created witty slogans and displayed them on big, beautiful banners. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters and the plea that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. The problem was no one ever fished. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. The board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, and decide what new streams should be thought about. The staff and the committee members did not fish. They just talked about fishing. 
large and elaborate and expensive training centers were built, whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology. (laughs) But the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many graduated and were given fishing license, and they were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters, which were filled with fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned. They were sent to fish. But like the fishermen back home, they never fished. They engaged in all kinds of other occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way so the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors and how loving and kind they were was enough. And that's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and they put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen yet never fished. Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't fish were not really fishermen. No matter how much they claim to be fishermen. Yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never fishes? More plainly stated, is one really following Jesus if he isn't fishing? Since Jesus told his first disciples to go and be fishers of men. We need to do more than talk about it and think about it and send money for it to be done in mission work. We need to personally fish ourselves. Jared, when he moved to Bryson City a few months ago, he's living right up close to the Tuckasegee River. He found out when he got up there it was supposed to be one of the best places to trout fish. Gave me a heart attack. It was his money, not my money, but I'm still his dad. We didn't spend $600 on trout fishing gear. You know, you, you go to an Orvis store, you can do that pretty quick. Going in buying fly rods and stuff like that. So he started going fishing some up there. And I thought, well, you know, I've not fly fished in a long time. I've not really had time to trout fish. But I thought, well, since Jerry's going to do that, I need to go. So I, I didn't go spend the kind of money he did. I went to Dick's Sporting Good and bought about a $150 uh, rod. And then I, I had old waders. But then eventually uh, uh, I kind of got some waders given to me by Jared uh, back at Christmas. And even before that, I think it might have been my birthday uh, last year or something, uh, sometime or another. I've been Father's Day last year, but he gave me some wading boots and everything. Nice gear. I've never used it yet. At home in the closet. You understand why I tell that story? God's given us so much. 
Jesus has done so much for us. Are we going to fish? Let's pray. God, forgive us when we fail to honor what you've done for us. Forgive us when we ignore all the tools you've given us, all the gifts you've given us. And we fail to fish for souls. Forgive us when we make excuses. Forgive us when we give up because it gets a little difficult because there's some obstacles. Father, I pray you'd help all of us to have a personal mission of getting others to Jesus. Father, I pray you help all of us to have an eager anticipation of getting others to Jesus and the difference he can make in their lives. Father, help all of us that we don't give up too easy when it gets difficult and our, and our hands get dirty and we get tired and we get frustrated with whoever we're trying to get to Jesus and people keep saying no. But Father, don't let us give up too easy. God, give us a desire. God, give us a desire. Give me a desire. Give the members of day three church, the people in this church, a desire to see something extraordinary as you transform the lives of others. And there's someone joining us in this room or joining us by way of Facebook today. Father, we, that needs Jesus, Father, I, I pray you'd speak to their heart. Draw them to yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.